Like many cities in America, Colorado Springs has struggled with what is often called a homeless problem. The problem is usually seen from one of two perspectives. One, the homeless are a nuisance. Whether they're panhandling, drunk, or just unsightly, they're unpleasant. They drive away customers, scare people. From this perspective, the solution is thought to be ordinances against panhandling, loitering, and drinking in public. Campsites are cleared out. Citizens are encouraged to stop giving money. And everyone hopes the problem will go away. Or, two, the homeless are our most vulnerable citizens, the victims of circumstances both personal and societal. They deserve our help. We dip into our pockets for change. Churches and charitable organizations move in to provide shelter, health care, meals, mental health services, job counseling. All of these things have happened here in Colorado Springs. Aggressive panhandling is prohibited downtown, and you can't legally hold out a cardboard sign on an off-ramp. Meanwhile, dozens of churches and nonprofits provide services from meals to shelter within walking distance of downtown. And yet the chronically homeless continue to panhandle, and drink or drug in public while making their way between various service organizations and soup kitchens. All of it helps, but none of it solves the problem. There are still a lot of people without homes, and it's hard to imagine it'll ever be different. See, this ain't right, though, because, see, I usually, when I cut these guys' hair, I usually put on videos and surround sound. I'm sorry, we can do that. <laughs> Go for it. Huh? Go for it. <laughs> hey, you'll like this one here. You don't know who Pat Benatar is, do you? <laughs> yeah, your hair was pretty cool on top, man. I wasn't really yeah. mess with the top. Yeah. Daryl Valdez is a stocky man in his early 50s with spiky gelled hair and a black mustache. He wears jeans and a baggy Broncos jersey. Electric clippers in hand, his makeshift windowless barber shop is covered in framed Alcoholics Anonymous certificates and photos of hot rods. A little more than a year ago, Daryl was fresh off the streets of Denver, one of the first 12 people selected to join an experimental program for the chronically homeless at a former prison in rural southeastern Colorado called Fort Lyon. Before I got here, well, I lived a pretty, pretty normal life, you know, like, and this could happen to anybody, you know, it could happen to you, you know, let, you let alcohol take control of your life, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, I've worked for, uh, I did litigation support work for law firms for 15 years, you know, I've worked in law firms in Los Angeles and here, and, uh, you know, I used to manage files during big corporate trials. And uh, it's just, you know, I mean, I was, I started off hitting, you know, the happy hour scene pretty much after work five days a week. And then it just started creeping up on me slower and slower, you know, where got to a point where, you know, it was alcohol was where I needed it, you know, in the morning. And I get up in the morning, first thing I did before I brush my teeth is look for a can of beer or a shot of whiskey or something, you know, to get my day going. And then that's when everything just started falling apart, you know. I was taking alcohol with me to work, you know, and I was just, you know, taking my lunch breaks, 
instead of going to McDonald's, I was going to the bar, having a couple beers instead of going to lunch, coming back, you know, and then it just started slowly progressing where I was, you know, calling in sick when I wasn't sick, when I was really half drunk, you know, and, uh, and then I started losing jobs. Then I wasn't paying my bills. Then I lost my place. Then next thing you know, I was like, damn, I don't have nowhere to go. In many ways, Daryl's story could stand in for the stories of all the residents here at Fort Lyon. The circumstances and details of their stories are different, but they all end with addiction and homelessness in some form or another. After he lost his home, Daryl became the guy you see passed out in a doorway, the person holding a cardboard sign on a highway off-ramp, or stumbling around the bus station trying to scrape up enough money for a bottle. Like many homeless people in Denver, one of Daryl's main lifelines was the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, a nonprofit organization that provides housing and services to the homeless in the Denver metro area. I used to go down to the coalition. They used to uh, have a raffle every morning and just give away RTD bus tickets. And I was actually going down there for it take a couple of hours and waiting in line to hopefully call my name, you know, get a couple of bus tickets. And 90% of the time, I just get them bus tickets, go straight to a bus stop and sell them. So I go get me something to drink. You know, that was my way of, of my early morning, you know, go sell them bus tickets to somebody waiting for the bus. So I go get me a drink, you know, and I was in there one day and the counts, one of the counselors, I was giving me the bus tickets. I was looking pretty bad and she asked me if I was all right. And I told her no. So she told me about this place a month before they opened up and, uh, she asked me if I was interested, so I was tired, you know. So I said, I was like, you know, I'm dying. I found myself actually dying. So I came. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. And this is Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. If you knew nothing about Fort Lyon, you might mistake it for a quaint Midwestern liberal arts college at first glance. Sturdy brick buildings with tall columns surround a grassy quad. People in casual clothes with notebooks tucked under their arms walk casually from building to building. For such a small and remote location in the western United States, Fort Lyon's history is long and varied. It was built as an army fort in the 1860s, an outpost on Colorado's southeastern plains before Colorado was even a state. It was from here that Colonel John Chivington launched the Bloody Sand Creek Massacre. It eventually became a Navy sanatorium, then a Veterans Administration hospital for most of the 20th century. Over time, the small town of Los Animas grew up around it. In 2001, it was converted to a minimum security prison. After the prison closed in 2011, Fort Lyon sat empty for two years, while local and state leaders debated its fate. Uh, we got a call from the governor's chief of staff letting us know that the Department of Corrections would be departing um, the Fort Lyon campus, and, um, but that the state would work with us, the county, and the community in repurposing uh, the Fort Lyon campus. This is Bill Long, a commissioner for Bent County, Colorado, which is where Fort Lyon is located, and the owner of a local Dairy Queen. Well, there was a, a great amount of uh, disappointment, uh, primarily because it was a loss of 200 jobs. 
But beyond that, uh, and probably equally as important for me, uh, was the fact that we, we didn't have a plan for Fort Lyon. And Fort Lyon's been a part of uh, Bent County uh, since before uh, Colorado was even a state. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper and his staff recognized the vital importance of Fort Lyon to this rural community. It wasn't long before a state task force was assembled to look at new uses for the facility. Heading up this team was Reeves Brown, executive director of the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. The Department of Agriculture does agriculture, Department of Transportation does transportation, Department of Local Affairs does what? No one understands. The Department of Local Affairs exists to support local communities. Reeves Brown is a self-described ranch kid from Montana and fiscal conservative, by no means a bleeding heart advocate for the homeless. At the outset of this process, homelessness wasn't even on his radar. Well, our goal wasn't to create a homeless recovery center. Our goal was to repurpose Fort Lyon so that it could continue this 100-year tradition of contributing to the community. Um, We looked at a myriad of potential opportunities. We looked at it as uh, everything from from a training center to an economic development incubator. We looked at a lot of things. The idea of using it to recover homeless individuals was uh, came up later in the discussion as we crossed off other opportunities on our list that we looked through. And quite honestly, I, I thought it was one of the craziest ideas I'd ever heard of. It was Pat Coyle, director of the Colorado Division of Housing, together with Governor Hickenlooper's chief of staff, Roxanne White, who first proposed the idea of using Fort Lyon to meet the need for housing in the state. Coyle explains. On an ongoing basis, we are trying to end homelessness. So whether it's a vacant building, an underutilized building, we keep that in the front of our thought. From a standpoint of Fort Lyon, it was a quick exercise of asking the question to the Veterans Administration when it was going to revert back, how much are you going to spend to keep it closed? And their cost of keeping the facility closed is over a million dollars a year. The Veterans Administration has a national goal to end veteran homelessness by 2015. That's next year. So why would you want to close such a facility, expend a million dollars to keep it closed, when you have a national objective of ending homelessness for veterans? The Veterans Administration's goal of ending veteran homelessness by 2015 dovetails with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's goal of, quote, finishing the job of ending chronic homelessness by 2015, end quote. That took us to the point of asking the question, why not repurpose it to meet the national objective that the VA has set out, to meet the state's objective that the governor has set out, um, and um, save taxpayers money. The VA ultimately didn't want to take control of the property, but the seed had been planted, and the vision for Fort Lyon as a new kind of treatment facility for the homeless began to take shape. The state approached our president of the coalition, John Parvinsky, and said, we want to serve this population. You're the largest homeless service provider in the state. Would you have any interest in proposing a model? And I was um, running the Housing First program at the time and had been involved. I used to be the director of substance treatment services. I have a long history of um, working with addicts. This is James Ginsburg, program director at Fort Lyon. When he says housing first, he's referring to an approach to dealing with homelessness that's gained traction nationally over the last two decades. The basic idea is that homeless people should be given housing with no strings attached and no requirements to be sober. They should be offered services and aid, 
all without being obligated to use them as a condition of their lease. Colorado Coalition for the Homeless has been working to provide this type of housing to homeless people around the state, and James Ginsburg was in charge of that initiative. Certainly wasn't sitting there thinking about opening up a facility, not at all. We've never been in this business. Um, We've always lamented lack of access to long-term treatment. We've known that we wanted it. Um, And so began to conceptualize what our best-case scenario would be. How could we fill the gaps that have been really pretty profound in this community, which is trauma-informed care, quick access where you don't have to wait for six months or a year, Really, Phil Harrington and I, the associate director, we really began to conceptualize a model. And that model that we originally presented is is what stands today. I first got here, it was like a ghost town, man. Oh, like, whoa. That's Joe, a construction worker from Chicago and our tour guide. Along with Daryl, he was one of the first residents to arrive at Fort Lyon in September of 2013, and he's taken an active role in restoring the campus. Now we're into the outside part of it. I can talk about a little bit outside. Like the flowers, we, these were empty flowers. When we got here, we had to get the flowers planted. Uh, the bushes, you might not tell, but they had like 10 years growth on them. That's what we got when we cut them back. Uh-huh. You know, everybody said they looked like bonsai trees. You know, but it was the overgrowth, dead stuff. We had to cut from the bottom up yeah. until we got to the top. A lot of uh, the prison didn't take care of that we had to come back and just about skin them alive, you know. Okay, since we to the outside, we got the flagpole here. You know what that is? That comes off a ship. Oh, right, yeah. That was a mass. It's clear that this is home to Joe. As we tour the grounds, he takes every opportunity to point out a project he's completed, working on, or intends to work on, with all the enthusiasm of a new homeowner. When you see all this color here, this was white up until like three months ago. It was just straight white. If you notice some of the halls... There's no boss breathing down his neck. Nowhere for him to clock in and clock out. Just a desire to do for this place what it's doing for him. You know, a lot of us, when we got here, uh, it was like if you see it and it needs to be done, do it. You know, A lot of guys came in, a lot of women came in and they hopped on the same thing, helping out. You Because know, if you notice, we still moving. This lack of outwardly enforced structure is, perhaps, the biggest part of what makes Fort Lyon unique. When residents first arrive, they're given a room and encouraged to simply rest and take a break from the constant stress of survival. After two weeks, they're invited to start participating in communal life in whatever ways best suit them. Most importantly, the pressure is off. Residents are made to feel that they can settle in and, project by project, work to make Fort Lyon into the kind of place that they can call home. The other major difference with most treatment programs, which typically last anywhere from a month to 90 days, is that residents of Fort Lyon are invited to stay for up to two years. James Ginsburg, the program director, is a bespectacled man of middle age with kind eyes and a neatly cropped gray beard. He's been working with the homeless in different capacities for 25 years. Though he lives in Denver, he spends three nights and four days at Fort Lyon each week, sleeping in his office with his two doting dogs. He deals with a near-constant barrage of questions, concerns, and operational issues from residents and staff. Think of him as a combination of CEO, therapist, school principal, cheerleader, and father figure, the fearless leader and friend-in-chief of Fort Lyon. He says that the open-ended, long-term nature of this program is central to the overall vision. 
we made it two years because most of these folks um, have been drinking and drugging for decades. And so it's going to take some time. And, and it's, it's been pretty well documented that a 30-day or 60-day or 90-day intervention for this disease in this population is just not adequate. Sort of every, the only thing that has to change is everything. For most of the people who walk through the doors at Fort Lyon, life on the street has been a constant struggle for survival, structured mostly by the needs for food, shelter, safety, and the next bottle or hit. According to Ginsburg, it takes a lot more than a couple months to unwind from that kind of stress, to learn how to rebuild structure for oneself, and to start seeing a way forward. When people first come in, they're what we call sort of still running game, you know, still tr- on, in survival mode and still really hypervigilant and hypersensitive and hyperactive. And so we spend the first two weeks just kind of ramping things down. We also don't want to create a false or artificial community. We want people to structure their own time because they're going to have to do that when they leave. Even though you can stay two years, we understand it's a very short period of time in your life's journey. And so um, treatment centers have been notorious for, you know, this highly structured, highly regimented thing. And then the next day at discharge, you're sort of back into your old world and haven't really learned the transition. So we think that, that two years is really the, the best length. Time is the, that, that is the big point, time. Because a lot of places, you got three months. What can you do in three months? You get a job, they help you with your housing. Okay, you get it, what's left? Do you have nothing else? You know, I'm sharpening my skills up here. You know, even like talking to you guys, I'm sharpening my skills right now. For many people at Fort Lyon, the time allows them to dust off skills they had before they became homeless. Joe did construction and ran crews before he wound up on the streets. Now he finds himself overseeing renovation projects around campus. Others take advantage of opportunities to learn new skills and start careers. Often, it's the needs of the Fort Lyon community itself that present those opportunities. Like many entrepreneurs, Daryl Valdez recognized an unfilled demand. New residents coming in off the streets needed haircuts. I mean, I've been cutting hair for years. You know, I had a girlfriend that... Uh, her and her best friend owned a salon, and I dated her for a few years. And and I used to go to her shop, and and she used to cut people's hair in the apartment, and and she just kind of basically trained me. And when I got here, you know, I was, you know, some of the first twelve that were here. You know, I mean, some of these guys haven't had haircuts in years. You know, they've been living under bridges, so. One of the guys that was here had a pair of clippers. I didn't have any. And I was like, come on, let's go. You know, we'd hook up and I'd say, sit down, man. And we just, you know, and I'd do that. I'd start cutting. I'd borrow these guys' clippers and I started cutting hair in the, just in the bathrooms and in the hallways. You know, so I talked to uh, James or and Phil and... I was like, well, I could, I, you know, I, I could cut hair. Uh, this was, the chairs were left here from when it was a prison. So we had the chairs and, uh, and then I just kind of made a list and we went, uh, shopping and 
and got clippers and scissors and combs and, and the basic stuff I needed just to cut hair. It's important to emphasize that residents aren't forced to work. In fact, they aren't forced to do much of anything. All are encouraged to participate in what are called pre-employment modules that teach skills, or to go to take classes at Otero or Lamar Community Colleges. But there are no requirements beyond sobriety and safe behavior. As Ginsburg explains, rather than demanding that residents spend their time in certain ways, the program is designed to give them as much autonomy as possible. This approach runs counter to many other highly structured homeless services and treatment programs. It's person-centered, that we are not going to create this model and then make you fit into it. And then when you don't fit into it, we're going to call you non-compliant. And that's been part of the system as well, that if you don't fit into our time slots, our process, our procedures for accessing services, then you're just lazy and non-compliant. Now, those systems may be, you know, intolerable to access. People, especially with mental health issues, can't tolerate uh, oftentimes shelters or large waiting areas. And so with masses of people and the overstimulation of it, and so part of our attraction to this is the 500 acres and allowing people to spread out and really slowing it down. The residents really drive the program. When they say something should be this way, we really take that seriously and that we have a resident council that is central in advising our programming and that if something doesn't make sense in terms of a process that we developed, we change it. And that, um, and so that's a hard, challenging thing to maintain and large systems or bureaucracies or people tend to not want to do that, tend to want to make the services convenient for them and not for the person being served. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here from KRCC Radio Colorado College. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Fort Lyon, a new experimental homeless recovery program. It's located on the campus of a former prison in southeast Colorado, and it gives residents dealing with addiction and mental illness up to two years to rebuild their lives, with no strings attached other than sobriety and safe behavior. 
Another of Fort Lyon's counterintuitive approaches to treating chronically homeless people with drug or alcohol addictions is the remote, rural setting. Prevailing wisdom in homeless advocacy circles for decades has been that housing and services should be provided in vivo. This means that people are housed and treated in the communities where they live. As Fort Lyon Program Director James Ginsburg explains, this community-based approach first emerged in response to abysmal conditions in state mental hospitals in the mid-20th century. Yeah, and you know how we do in this culture. We swing to extremes. And in the in 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and, and into the 60s and even 70s, the state hospitals, mental institutions, backwards, the, the notoriety, which absolutely needed to be closed and were very abusive and dehumanizing. And so um, when that happened, we sort of swung the other way and said, let's do everything in vivo or in the context of the community, which is a, is a fabulous concept and we're very supportive of that and that um, you should access naturally occurring resources and, and we should deinstitutionalize people and support them in the community. The problem was, and continues to be, is we didn't adequately fund that support system in the community through the mental health system, mental health center system, um, which do incredible work, but once again are not adequately resourced. The other problem, says Ginsburg, is that for people with addictions, the community they're living in is often a culture full of opportunities and temptations to continue drinking or using. In those cases, the isolation of a place like Fort Lyon can be extremely helpful. But Ginsburg says that this isolation has made some in the homeless advocacy community uncomfortable. They worry that Fort Lyon could signal a return to the days of institutionalization, the days of shipping the most vulnerable members of society out of the city, out of sight, out of mind. Ginsburg says not so. This is only for a subgroup of the homeless population. These are for folks who are not getting clean and sober in vivo. Their vivo, their community, is keeping them in the cycle of homelessness, in the cycle of addiction, um, not accessing um, the resources that are available. And so it's for folks that want to address their addiction and mental health issues and want to come out of the community for a minute. that people, places, and things are my triggers. So if I can avoid certain people, part of my past, um, certain places, say East Colfax, (laughs) um, and things, you know, it just... um, I found that, like, even in movies, when there's drugs in movies, I have to turn it off. This is Linda. She's the curtain maker at Fort Lyons. Whenever new residents arrive, one of the first things they get to do is go down to her shop and pick out a fabric for curtains. It's a small way to help new residents feel at home in their new rooms. For Linda, getting some distance from her community and family in Denver has been one of the best parts of the program. First of all, I don't want to leave. (laughs) Um, When my case manager asked me how long I intended on staying, I was like, I'm in it for the long haul. I I can see myself being here, or at least in the community, you know, whether it's in La Junta or Lamar, or I don't really want to go into, like, the big cities. I wasn't raised around the big cities. Joe feels the same. Yep, this is about like this all the time. Seems like that's part of the appeal, just the kind of the peace and quiet. Yeah, it's, uh, 
It is. It's part of the quiet. You don't, and a lot of the places in the city, you still deal with the city stuff, the town stuff, and out here, you have no triggers. And we know what triggers are. Trigger can be for alcoholics seeing a bottle on the street. Oh, I wonder how that is. Uh, a billboard, cigarettes, or, you know, whatever. Everything's a little trigger. You know, we don't have that out here. They'll live with it. You know, just got rid of it. Period. See what we got. I like it. The rural setting of Fort Lyon, though unusual in 2014, also echoes a much older and mostly forgotten American tradition of housing the homeless, the county poor farm. Though the poor farm is probably most familiar to people these days as a figure of speech, it was once an important housing resource for communities around the country. As it happens, the El Paso County Poor Farm in Colorado Springs was one of the last two remaining poor farms in the entire United States when it closed in the 1980s. Matt Parkhouse, a nurse and longtime homeless advocate in Colorado Springs, explains. There was kind of a poor farm movement in this country um, all over the Midwest. And if you drive down old state highways in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, places like that, you'll often see a cluster of brick buildings um, on the edge of a small town. And that was originally their county farm. And we had, it's a kind of a distinctive architecture. And the idea was if you were um, old and frail and poor, they would take care of you there and you'd sit on the rocking chair on the front porch and uh, be taken care of until you died. If you were young and fit and poor, you would go there and work in the fields and milk the cows and harvest the hay. And our county farm actually turned a profit for a number of years um, operating on that scale. The poor farm served an important purpose during its day. It was a place where people with nowhere else to turn could stay for free, provided that they pitched in to the extent that they could. Like the poor farm, much of the day-to-day work that keeps Fort Lyon running is done by the residents. And like the long-outdated mental hospitals, Fort Lyon does provide in-house counseling and psychiatric services based on current best practices. But no one here is locked up or forced to do any treatment or work they don't choose for themselves. And where the state hospitals of old were largely designed to warehouse people who couldn't take care of themselves... Fort Lyon is decidedly geared towards rehabilitation, toward giving people their lives back. (laughs) Yeah, I was sitting at the picnic table, and a young man, and I I considered him to be a young man, maybe in his early 20s, and he pulled up on his bike, and he said, taxi man? Or no, he said, someone called for a taxi? This is Janice Shook. When we spoke to her in July, she was a recent arrival to Fort Lyon from Colorado Springs. She's 46 years old and just off what she called the dead list after several years of hard drinking on the streets. And I said, oh, I was on a 10-speed. I said, yeah, but I called for a bicycle built for two. <laughs> and he said, backseat or handlebars? I said, backseat. And you know what? I'm not even kidding. And he goes, neither am I. And I got up, got on the bike, and said, please go slow and don't go far because I'm going to fall you over. <laughs> and as I put, I'm going to fall you down. <laughs> And he did. And he drove up the street, did a U-turn very carefully. The whole time we're talking, talking about getting on bicycles and going for a ride. And um, drove me up the other side of the street, another U-turn. And it was just the most awesome feeling. I actually got to be a real human being. A real person with a life on a bicycle, you know? 
For James Ginsburg and his team at Fort Lyon, these kinds of moments are essential to rehabilitation. Residents need to feel human again. They need to reconnect with feelings of well-being that may have been stripped from them early in life. This approach is called trauma-informed care. It's an approach to treatment of the chronically homeless that presumes people living on the streets for extended periods of time have suffered one or more major traumas in their lives. Well, really simply put, it's, it's first understanding that about 92% of the people we serve have a history of severe trauma, whether it's childhood, abuse, neglect. Certainly the experience of living on the street is traumatizing. Um, and it's starting with the understanding that we don't want to re-traumatize people. It's real simple in many ways. It's being kind to people, um, asking the question, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. Um, And then addressing issues from a person-centered perspective, not that they are um, bad people trying to get good, but sick people trying to get well. As Ginsburg explains, the types of trauma that most residents have experienced are bleak and can have long-lasting effects on their lives. If there were two parents, for the most part, um, they've been physically abused and you'd be really surprised at how often have been sexually abused, um, you know, early childhood. So you're on this trajectory of just, you know, trying to climb out of this hole your whole life. And so you see people getting into this early childhood trauma mode and never really can get out. It sort of gets recreated wherever they go. You know, and all kinds of other forms of, you know, certainly neglect and early adolescent or even childhood substance use provided by their caregiver. You know, you could sort of imagine. It's sort of what you would think, unfortunately. When you do sit down with the residents at Fort Lyon and ask them what happened, it's clear what he means. My mother told me that when she was pregnant with me, she used to drink a gallon of gallon wine every day. And I'm kind of upset about that. This is Linda, the curtain maker. It's like, how dare you, you know, try and, you know, mess with somebody. But then I can't sit there and pull the stick out of her eye when I had a log in my own eye because I was smoking weed with all three of my pregnancies. So, you know, it's like, like you said, kind of the chicken and the egg kind of thing. Chuck is still struggling to get his bearings at Fort Lyon, not sure if he wants to stay. My family doesn't even want to talk to me because of my situation. And my father passed away on Thanksgiving of last year, and I was not informed that he was buried, and I was not included in the obituaries, and I have stuff that I need to work through. This is Annie. I was on the streets for about it. Um, well, this is my this is my second time being homeless. Uh, the first time was about 12 years ago in my early 20s. I was homeless for probably six months in Denver, and then uh, went to treatment. Got put on an involuntary commitment and went to treatment. And then when I was in Seattle, my everybody was my family was trying to practice tough love, you know. So. Um, they kind of left me out there to until I. They were hoping that I would just burn out and go to treatment and stuff. But once I start drinking, um, I don't. I can't. I can't stop. And um, and I start 
like smoking cocaine and crack uh, crack cocaine and doing all sorts of stuff so in and out of shelters often on the streets and this is Janice the woman who took the bicycle taxi ride I met my husband when I was 12 years old and we dated for quite some time and my situation was that I had a very mentally ill mother who decided that it was an appropriate thing for me to marry this person because she wanted to have a relationship with the person. So therefore, if he were in the family, she could thus do that. Was he older? He was a Fort Carson soldier. He was six years older. I was 12 when I met him. He was 18. As James Ginsburg says, 92% of the residents at Fort Lyon have dealt with some sort of significant life trauma. So it's only natural that the program take that into account. The program treats addiction and chronic homelessness as symptoms of the psychological distress that follows from this kind of trauma, rather than as deviant behavior that must be corrected. If drinking, drugging, and homelessness are seen as the after-effects of trauma rather than as moral failings, the question of how responsible a person is for his or her own situation becomes a lot more complicated. The approach at Fort Lyon is to err on the side of compassion and redemption. It's easy to blame somebody for their own problems. And so I think that makes it easier to point a finger at a person who's standing on a street corner with a sign that says, need a little help, to say, well, why don't you just get a job? This is Lynn Ryder, the clinical director at Fort Lyon. She oversees everything from referrals to case management. But getting a job means you have to have an address, you have to have a phone, you have to have the clothing to go in for interviews, you have to have a computer so that you can download applications. Most job applications anymore are done online. And if you've lost your home, then you don't have ready access to all of those things to get that job back. And in our culture, we're really ready to blame the victim for so many things that um, we're a very independent nation. And we expect people to just pull themselves up by the bootstraps to take care of themselves. And we don't see often that it takes, um, who was it Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village to raise a child. I think it takes a village to support a person. A village of support is what people get at Fort Lyon. That support comes from staff, administrators, community members, and fellow residents. Many of the people at Fort Lyon are long estranged from whatever support systems they may have once relied on. Lynn Ryder believes that rebuilding those systems is also crucial. I think that's an integral piece for people, and that's something that we continue to work with them on, is identifying who is safe for you to be with. Um, who is supportive of you? Who is supportive of your dreams, your goals, your recovery? Who is going to do that? It's really important that people are able to identify who can I turn to when things get tough? Because you know what? Things get tough for all of us. I don't care what our situation is. I don't care how much money we have, how much support we have. Stuff happens in life, and we all need to be able to have that safety net of somebody that we can contact to say, hey, let me just listen to you for a little while. I'm here. 
And it's not just the professional counselors, the AA programs, or the peers who are there to support the residents of Fort Lyon. It's all the basic services that most people take for granted. On top of the warm beds, bathrooms, and showers that Fort Lyon provides, there's a cafeteria that serves all meals, a health clinic, counseling services, a clothing store, transportation that takes residents into Los Animas and La Junta to work, go to the dentist, or take classes at the local community college. There's a library, a post office, on-site job training, a cafe with internet, a gymnasium, a weight room, a bike shop, a church, a movie theater, and there are case managers who help guide the residents through the maze of services they'll need to navigate to put their lives back together. These kinds of services can be found in almost any major city and are available free of charge to the homeless. They are usually provided by an array of different organizations, each with its own administrative bureaucracy. In Colorado Springs alone, there are dozens of organizations that serve the homeless in some capacity. But accessing and taking advantage of these services and the many programs they offer, says Lynn Ryder, can often be traumatic in and of itself. They are looking at how am I going to get to the Department of Human Services and make this appointment and then still get over to this place so that I can make sure that I get lunch. And then I've got a doctor's appointment and, oh my gosh, I need to get over to this place to find some dinner. And then, boy, I hope my stuff is safe where I tucked it under the tree branches along the river. Their day is just driven. Um, you know, from the time they get up in the morning until the time they're going to bed at night. They've got things that they need to do and to take care of, and they're doing it. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the first two weeks at Fort Lyon, we got, you don't really have to do a whole lot. We want you to relax. We want you to rest. We want you to recover. We want you to start to feel comfortable in the surroundings. Walk to the library. Walk around the grounds. Find somebody to sit and talk with. Um, we don't start a lot of groups or a lot of meetings for the new people in that first two weeks because it takes them that, you know, just to let down, to go, oh, I don't have to worry about is there going to be enough food left by the time I get there tonight. There's going to be food. By consolidating all these services in one facility and keeping track of residents as they move through the program, Fort Lyon provides a degree of stability and ease of access that's very difficult to achieve in vivo. It makes a lot of sense. At Fort Lyon, people don't have to spend all of their time moving from one service provider to another, trying to figure out where the next meal will come from or where they'll spend the night. Instead, they can focus their energy on education, self-improvement, and planning for the future. This is Wish We Were Here from KRCC. Stay with us.
This is Wish We Were Here from KRCC. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. On today's show, we're telling the story of Fort Lyon, a former prison in southeastern Colorado turned recovery facility for chronically homeless people struggling with addiction. It's a place full of innovative strategies that run counter to conventional wisdom. Individuals who join the program are housed, fed, treated for addiction, and much more for up to two years on a rural campus. It's free, and there are no strings attached but sobriety and safe behavior. The big, looming question that hangs over this program is, of course, the price tag. At Fort Lyon, residents pay nothing for their stay. Two years of room, board, health care, support services, recreation, all of it's paid for by the state of Colorado, to the tune of about $16,000 per year per resident. It may sound like a lot of money, but according to Pat Coyle, head of Colorado's Division of Housing and Urban Development, the cost of the status quo is far greater. The cost of someone who lives on the street is well documented. The Coalition for the Homeless in 2006 ran a study uh, of over four years. Uh, Two years of an individual living on the street and two years uh, of that same individual living in permanent housing. So the measure of the cost living on the street is over $43,000. Again, these are 2006 numbers. So they're probably greater now. But that cost is driven by uh, time in the jail for misdemeanor charges, detox, three days to detox, you're back on the street, you're back in detox, you're back on the street, it's a revolving door. The most costly way to provide medical services is through the emergency rooms. And then um, the cost of mental health as well as a lot of other answery type of, of uh, public cost. And we know that if you stabilize those individuals, that it's much less expensive to provide that service and housing, you know, somewhere between fifteen and $20,000. Again, here's Reeves Brown, head of the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. What's difficult is being able to show where are the savings realized because they're spread and some of them just vaporize, right, the health care costs. So you just kind of bleed into uh, your health care premiums, right? They seem to trickle up. <laughs> they trickle up. And, and, so, and so for the state, it was a challenge to get the state, the legislature, to embrace the idea of investing in this program because certainly there's some benefit to the state that we document, but it's not the whole savings. And I think fiscal conservatives, uh, of, of, of which I are one, uh, it's easy to look at the cost for this or similar programs and say, well, that's a lot to spend, right, $16,000 per person. Um, but you have to look at the cost of doing nothing, and the reality is it's, it's not a question of will we uh, spend money on these individuals. The question is how will we spend money, and will it be an investment to recover them uh, sustainably, or will it be uh, throwing money at a chronic problem just to keep the door revolving? It's easy to imagine how people might ideologically take issue with Fort Lyon. Do these people deserve this? Is society being forced to pick up the tab for people who refuse to pick it up for themselves? Are the services that Fort Lyon provides simply government handouts? But no matter how you answer these questions, it's hard to argue with the numbers. As Coyle and Brown say, like it or not, we are all already paying to support the chronically homeless. So why not try to lower the amount that we're paying while also ensuring that the money is being spent in ways that help people actually get off the streets? 
And as James Ginsburg says, rethinking the economics of homelessness in this way can be tricky, but it's part of an important paradigm shift in our society's approach to the issue. This is a systemic problem, and it takes a systemic solution. And so I think you sort of, you sort of need to have this cooperation that we're willing to do it differently. You know, we're willing to, to spend the upfront costs of creating affordable housing with supportive services, which feels like a tremendous amount of expense up front in order to realize the long-term savings. It's like any social change or any thinking change. You have to be willing to sort of take some risks and make some investments on the front end. As of December 2014, the program is little more than a year old, and many of the residents have already made great strides toward recovery. What can't yet be accounted for, though, is whether rehabilitation at Fort Lyon will really work. And if it does work, what does work even mean? For Reeves Brown, it means sending people back into the world. To me, we haven't succeeded if all we've done is be able to provide a place where they can come to away from the world and and finally feel comfortable. We haven't succeeded until we have stood those individuals up and pumped enough self-esteem into their tires and given them the skills and the training that they need to go back into the world with everybody else and not just survive, but succeed. James Ginsburg. People want to know what the outcomes are and what the success is. And, um, and you know, it's just that's going to take some time. It's, it's really going to take some time. The rubber hits the road with long-term sobriety after they leave here, and we're not going to know that for a while. We have a process in place for tracking that. There's no question that some will and already have failed. Roughly 20% of those who entered in the first year were either asked to leave because of sobriety violations, left voluntarily, or left and returned. But that still leaves the program with an 80% retention rate, compared to the 50% retention rate of most other residential drug and alcohol treatment programs. How well graduates are able to reintegrate back into their chosen communities is another aspect of what will inevitably define success for the program. Fort Lyon staff help residents obtain housing vouchers in communities of their choosing, and many of the residents hope to leave Fort Lyon with a new degree or new skills that will enable them to find work outside. At this point in the process, though, it's still unknown how people will respond to life back in the city, with all the old triggers and stresses that it will inevitably bring. The residents understand these challenges better than anybody. Here's Daryl Valdez again, the unofficial barber of Fort Lyon, who we spoke to in July. He's been at Fort Lyon since the day it opened on September 3rd, 2013. My year's up here next month, and I'm not... I'm not really, some of the people here are, are like, my year's up. I want to get out of here. You know, that's not the way I'm looking at it. i am got to get myself right, you know. I don't care about a year or a year and a half or two years, whatever it takes, you know. And out there, there's still no guarantees. I've only been sober a year, you know. And, you know, they say alcoholism, period, there's, once an alcoholic, you're going to be an alcoholic for life. You just, just once you take that first drink, you're going to start going again. And I know if I stay here, I'm pretty much guaranteed to stay sober. You know, in Denver, you know, it's gonna, I'm just going to take it day by day. 
Reintegration is where the optimism on display at Fort Lyon collides with the realities of today's economy. Officials in Denver and elsewhere recognize that even if the residents can recover their lives and get back on their feet, there are larger social and economic forces that they'll have to contend with. Here's John Parvensky, head of the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, speaking to the Fort Lyon community at the one-year commemoration ceremony on September 23, 2014. We know that back in, uh, in our communities that housing right now is probably at its greatest cost, its greatest difficulty achieve, to achieve. Uh, rents are higher than they've ever been. Availability of affordable housing or supportive housing is very difficult. Many people are on waiting lists uh, that are longer than this place has been open. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, an early proponent of the new program at Fort Lyon, attended the ceremony and personally handed out certificates. Carol Valdez. This is part of the solution, but the other solution, the other part of the solution is making sure we have more affordable housing so that these folks are out, we get them back into society, maybe they're making $10 an hour, $15 an hour. We want to make sure that they can afford to have a place to live because, again, they're, they're in many cases emotionally fragile, and if they can't find that place to live, they, they kind of, they, they, they unravel. Program director James Ginsburg echoes the governor's sentiment. You look at what's happened with the, co- for, for the, issue of homelessness. In Denver, for example, um, you know, you used to, even 20 years ago, you could get off the bus, get a job at White Spot at 8th and Broadway, get a minimum wage job, and rent a room in Capitol Hill for 150 and you could make it. And minimum wage has not kept up with the cost of living. You know, wages in general have not kept up with the cost of living. And so there, we keep getting this expanding gap, and homelessness is becoming more and more profound, and more people are following, falling into homelessness. So it's ultimately, it's an economics. The, the economics don't work. It's not just a matter of stagnant wages and rising cost of living. Underfunded social services, a broken health care system, a broken public education system, lack of access to mental health care, the list of things that contribute to the problem of homelessness is long and familiar. As James Ginsburg said, if the problems are systemic, then the solutions must be systemic as well. We actually know what works. We actually know that, for example, housing first works. We know that treatment works. We know that long-term treatment works better. We know that criminalizing mental health doesn't work. And yet we've reduced our mental health care year after year after year until our high-cost Department of Corrections becomes the de facto mental health center. And so, I mean, you didn't ask me what the problem was. (laughs) You asked me what the solution was. Ultimately, it's lack of resources. What's so appealing about Fort Lyon is that it seems to offer a rare glimpse into what's possible when resources are provided. Ginsburg and his team have been given the freedom to design exactly the type of program that they felt was needed for this population, and they've been given the resources to make it happen. And while the jury is still out on whether the program will work in the long term, there's no denying that it's already had radical, transformative effects for many of the residents. Take Tim Cisneros. I'm 58 years old. I haven't had nothing, basically, in the last 25 years due to my alcoholism. But um, now I'm doing great out here. I'm doing great. I mean, there's like four or five of us that are 
been out here the longest, and we've achieved a lot out here. Staff's great. Everything's great out here. So uh, I just want to go out and get my voucher and live live life and the way it's supposed to be lived. And uh, that's my plan. Or take Joe, our tour guide at Fort Lyon. If you're on a corner and you're panhandling, you're stagnant. You're just sitting. Yeah, you make a few bucks and you make a dollar or two, but now it's it's more progress in my life, you know. It's moving forward. I'm almost feeling back to where I was before I really started drinking and using drugs and everything now. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling good. Good. Hey, let's go pump some iron today. <laughs> I don't know how we put a value to it. I don't know how you bottle it up. I just know it's working, and anybody who goes to Fort Lyon has the opportunity to meet residents there and visit with them. You can't walk away from there without knowing that this is different. This is a different deal. Fort Lyon alone, with its intended capacity of 300, will not solve the problem of chronic homelessness in Colorado, or even in Denver or Colorado Springs. And it's still an open question as to whether the model pioneered at Fort Lyon even could be replicated elsewhere. But the fact that a place like Fort Lyon exists at all a place where those who've lost everything are given the time, the space, the resources, and the respect necessary to rebuild their lives is significant. As a culture, we've always spent money housing people who are having trouble fitting into society, whether in mental hospitals, poor farms, or prisons. But when you look at Fort Lyon and you see the transformations taking place in the lives of the residents, it's hard not to wonder what our society might look like if we spent more of our money on rehabilitation and less on incarceration. What if we took the Fort Lyon model and its principles of person-centered, strength-based, trauma-informed care and support and applied it as widely as possible? It's taken everything we've ever learned and we've put it into play. You know, when you have 200 people off the street and 40 staff and people coming in every week, it, it takes everything you've got, every wit and wisdom and piece of energy. And so... Thank God it's working. I'd hate to be this exhausted if <laughs> it wasn't working. I just think the potential is is limitless. It's it's miraculous. This place actually saved my life. You know, because I could I couldn't even uh, walk up these steps. You know, before I when I came here, and you know, eleven months later, I could jump up these steps. And, you know, I'm living again. You know, I built my barber shop out of nothing. Got two semesters of college in. And I'm just ready to get my life back on track. Fort Lyon will continue to operate with funding from the state of Colorado on a provisional basis through September 3rd, 2015. At that point, it will be evaluated, and proponents hope that it will become a permanent part of the state's general budget. Many thanks to the staff and residents of Fort Lyon, to our production assistant Amelia Whitmer, and to our interns Han Sales and Lauren Antonoff. Original music in this episode was composed and performed by Iggy Igloo, a.k.a. Jonathan Ellis, with backup vocals from Merlin. You can listen to this and previous episodes of Wish We Were Here, along with extended interviews and other extras at krcc.org, or by subscribing to our podcast at iTunes. This has been a production of KRCC Radio Colorado College in Colorado Springs, Colorado. For Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black.